we get started, I, I was reminded, uh, heard, heard about this this week, but was reminded just now, a uh, local uh, young woman named Peyton, who was in a car accident along the frontage road of I-5. Um, cra- crazy, miraculous story. She was alone in the car. She was in an accident. Someone pulled her out of the car, and nobody knows who it was. Some good Samaritan, maybe an angel. Uh, pulled her out of the car. Uh, she, we, we don't know who did that. She, she's got a broken back and a broken foot. She's had surgery, but sh- neither she nor any of her immediate family are believers in Jesus. And so we, let's just stop for her right now. Let's just pray for Peyton and ask her, ask the Lord not only to heal her body, but to bring her and her family into the kingdom. So Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the privilege of prayer that that we can't, um, physically come into your presence right now because we still live in these bodies and we still have sin and we die. But, but in the spirit, Lord, we come into your presence, into the throne room, and we just petition you on our knees, Lord, in our hearts, that you would uh, move on behalf of Peyton and you would heal her body and you would restore her, Lord, to full health. And Lord, beyond that, we pray uh, as, as touching any one thing, we're in agreement as this church, as this body of believers, that you would bring her and her entire family into the kingdom, that they would know you, that they would, they would hear the gospel and they would respond to it positively, Lord. And we thank you for that. If, and if it falls on any of us to articulate that gospel, Lord, we ask that you would make us ready. Make us ready. And we'd be able to articulate the truth of your word to them at any moment. And not just them, anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is within us. We ask that you would make us ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for praying for Peyton. And I'm sure we'll get some updates in the days ahead and try to keep you posted as to her uh, improvement. We're in Harmony of the Gospels. This is uh, week 40 of our Harmony in the Gospels. I think we're maybe coming up on halfway. So uh, this is such a great series, and, I, and I'm so thrilled that we're doing this. You know, typically I get bored of a series after about 20 weeks. That's the longest I've gone. But I'm just not, I'm just, every week I'm stoked about the Harmony of the Gospels. I hope you are too. Um, in the first chapter of his letter to the Christians that were living in Rome, the Apostle Paul says this. This is Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The, the gospel, he says, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, because Jesus came to Israel first, right? And then also to the Greek. And the the word Greek there is meant to to mean everybody else, okay? Everybody else. So it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, that's a truth for every person on the planet if he or she will accept it. But most unsaved people are ashamed of the gospel. Some Christians are ashamed of the gospel too. 
Because the culture has shifted so severely in recent decades, there are people who are ashamed to admit in public that they love and worship Jesus. Christians who say they love Jesus, but who are ashamed of him when they come under scrutiny. They're playing a very dangerous game. We must not allow our hearts to shrink back in fear of what the world might think of us, especially when our brothers and sisters around the world, they're paying with their very lives for their faith. What does Hebrews tell us about this? Well, Hebrews 10, verse 35 to 39 tells us, don't throw away your confidence. And I'm, I'm, I'm one of those word nerd guys. I love getting at the meaning of words. Con is a prefix that means with. Fide is faith. Confidence is with faith. It's with faith. Don't throw away your confidence which has a very great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and he will not delay. Amen. Amen. Come on, come on, Lord Jesus. He will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, this is Jesus speaking. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, I think about the other side of that coin and so many souls that have stood in mockery of Jesus and mockery of the Christian faith and then were ashamed at the thought of loving Jesus and worshiping Jesus. And how many of those people do we know that God grabbed a hold of them and turned it around and now they love him? Can you think of stories of people like that? from the place of mocking God, mocking his sacrifice for sin, e even from that place of being embarrassed by such an antiquated belief in God, the Lord has saved people out of that. He, he delights to do that. People like, I have a short list here, uh, Peter Hitchens. He's the, the brother of late atheist Christopher Hitchens, who loved to debate Christians and make them look stupid. And, and here's, here's his brother, Peter Hitchens, who, how, how do you have two brothers so close and it's so far apart? That's crazy. People like Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, who finally submitted himself to God as his, this is his quote, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I think about pastor and preacher Alistair McGrath. I don't know if you've ever listened to Alistair preach, but if you have a Scottish brogue when you preach, you're just much more effective, I think. There's something about an accent, you know? And Alistair, he, he was a biochemist. I, I didn't know this until this week. I was reading up. He believed God had no place in science, no place in the lab, and he came to discover that Christianity was far more intellectually robust than he had even imagined. And that Christianity gave solid reasons for immaterial realities that his science could not explain. Things like truth, logic, justice. Atheism couldn't explain those things. Some of you would know the, the name Lee Strobel, an investigative journalist who was an atheist. And he began investigating the claims of Jesus because his wife had gotten born again. Guys, nothing will motivate you like a wife who gets born again. 
It's like, whew. And it prompted him to dig deep, to find the truth. He gave his life to Jesus at 29, eight years of age. He wrote, he's written books on apologetics that have helped many Christians in their walk. We could go on and on with this list of people who were diametrically opposed to the, even the concept of God, and he reached down and he saved them in his goodness and grace. What we're talking about here is the journey from being ashamed, specifically about Jesus, to being openly and unabashedly unashamed. So let's define our terms. Shame is something we all have experienced. It's the feeling that we've missed the mark according to our own standard or sometimes according to other people's standards. Shame keeps us from being honest about our struggles, honest about our sin. Fear of shame can drive us to perfectionism in our lives so that there would be no, no imperfections to be noticed, no imperfections to be judged, which actually is impossible to attain. It's, it puts you on a hamster wheel you can never get off of without Jesus inserting himself. Shame, shame is what we heap on others when they fail us. Shame keeps us holding on to bitterness, refusing to forgive, and it drives a wedge in our relationships. Our culture today is obsessed with shame. It's obsessed with shame. We've even taken other words that we use and we put it in the front of shame and then hyphenated it. It's really funny. Like we have terms like body shaming, fat shaming, mom shaming, which you don't want to do. Your mom, ooh, no matter how old you get, she's going to beat you. We, we even have pet shaming. How do, you sh- how do you shame a pet? I, d- I don't know. That's just crazy to me. The clear implication is that shaming others is sinful. Shaming others is wicked. Shaming others is wrong. And yet, Jesus, Jesus practiced shaming. Jesus shamed people. Oh, man, now we got a problem. My paradigm is cracked. Jesus shamed those who objected when he healed a suffering woman. In fact, this is Luke 13, 17. When he had done this, when he had healed her, all his opponents were put to shame. He he shamed them by doing this. It was his goal to shame them because of their self-righteousness. At least twice, Paul shames the Corinthian church to urge them towards proper conduct and proper actions. We know that he intended to do this because he says so. I say this to your shame. 1 Corinthians 6, 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Wow, so God even does this, right? 1 Corinthians 1, 27, God chose the foolish things of the world to do what? Shame the wise, right? He chose the foolish things of the world. That's us, by the way. You do know that. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to lay that on you this morning. Foolish things. Foolish things. To shame the wise, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Do you remember being elementary school, junior high school, middle school, and the last kids always picked for PE? Whatever. The, it doesn't matter what the game was. They were always picked last the weakest, right? Here's what God does. He reaches down to those, those people and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lift you up in humility, 
right? I want to shame people that think that they're strong in themselves. I want to shame people that think that they're brilliant in themselves. I want humility. He wants humility in us. God chooses the foolish things and the weak things to shame the strong. Now, shame can do tremendous harm, but it can also do tremendous good. According to the New Testament, shaming others appropriately was and is a virtuous thing to do, though it's certainly possible to misuse this approach. Now, I know some of these thoughts may be new for some of you, so let's jump into the text this morning so, so we can see this firsthand in the scriptures. And so we're looking at sections 119 and 120 this morning in the harmony of the gospels. And so section 119, I've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke recording the same passage. So Matthew 16, 21 to 26. (coughs) And the text says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And here's Mark 8. Remember again, Peter, Mark is Peter's Amenusis, his secretary, because Peter was an illiterate blue-collar worker. And so Mark is dictating Peter's telling. And so here's Mark 8, 31 to 37, same passage. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his elders, with his disciples, he said to them, "Uh, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? And then we have Luke. Luke chapter 9, 21 to 27. Same passage. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. 
So Jesus becomes explicit about his end game. This is the first time he's been this explicit about where he's going, where this is all going. Whereas before he'd been more coy, he'd been more reserved about this to this point. He knows perfectly well what is going to transpire. Jesus will suffer many things at the hands of wicked men, and we will detail that at length when we get to the crucifixion, unless, of course, Jesus comes first, which would be far better. I'm good with that. Peter probably thought he was doing the right thing by taking Jesus aside to rebuke him. I just look, come here, Jesus. Can you just come over here? Didn't want to do it in front of the guys. Didn't want to embarrass him. Let's just go over here. Peter's problem is that Peter forgot who he was talking to. Familiarity breeds discontent. And Peter could not see, he could not wrap his mind around God's greater purposes in that moment. To be perfectly fair to Peter, Christ's kingdom was and is both now and yet to come. Right? That can be hard for some people to navigate. Jesus' kingdom was inaugurated at his arrival. Um, Jesus's kingdom was inaugurated at his arrival when the, you know, the, the platoon of angelic beings showed up and, and suddenly the dark sky was lit up with light and they're, they're chanting, they're, you know, the war angels are like, we're here, we're here. Jesus has come. The, the, you know, the promised one is here. And then, um, but oh, I lost my place. <laughs> But it has not, that, that message has not completely gone out into all the world. And we know that because we're still here. It hasn't made it to every corner of the world. So, so we talk about Christ's kingdom as now and not yet. There's, a, there's the fullness of the kingdom that's coming, but we live in Christ's kingdom now. And the apostles believed all of it. As far as they could understand but remember, they're on the front side of the cross. They can't see all the details of where this is going. It's a little confusing for them. They thought Jesus was going to establish his kingdom on earth, like his literal, physical kingdom at that time. That's what they thought. And instead, here's Jesus rebuking Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. Like, can you imagine Jesus rebuking you with those words? That's, that's a little scary. Um, Peter thought he had a good grasp of the plan, of God's plan. And, he, and, he, and inherent to that thought is the next thought, well, then Jesus is kind of going off script here. And, and I'm just going to, out of respect, I'm going to kind of pull him aside so that we're not doing this in front of everybody and just kind of get him back on, on, back on track. But see, Jesus is never off script. He wrote the script. He is the script. Okay, so Peter is tied to the moment that he's in. He's just like every one of us. We're finite. God is infinite, right? And Peter thinks he has a pretty good grasp on what's happening and what's supposed to happen next, just like many of us. But if we could see the world as God sees the world, we would find that our best intentions and our best laid plans are sometimes far afield from what God has planned and what God's already doing in our midst. God does not need our help, but nevertheless, he invites us to participate with him in his working in the world. I call it toddlers with chainsaws. 
How many of you raised kids, and when they were little, they were two and three and four, they wanted to help? Yeah, help when helping hurts. That's what that's about, right? So this is, this is the reality here, okay? God does not need our help, but he does nevertheless invite us to participate with him in what he's doing in the world. That's, this is important, right? This, this knowing and understanding our role and not confusing our role with God's role. We need to get that right. Here are some examples from the scripture of what I'm talking about. In Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13, God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I have plans for you for your welfare and not for evil. I have plans for you to give you a future and a hope. And then here's your part. You ready? Then you're going to call upon me and you're going to come and pray to me. And then I, and then I get to respond. I, get, I will hear you. I'll hear you. And you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Wholehearted, unashamed. You see the your part, God's part in that, right? Listen to Luke 9, 23 and 24. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, that's our part, come after Jesus, let him deny himself, that's, that's us, and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, that, that's, that's for us to do. For whoever would save his life, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, God's doing the saving part. God's doing the saving part. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Be wholehearted, right? Wholehearted. And do not lean on your own understanding. Your gray matter, pretty powerful computer, but it doesn't even come close to God, right? In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then here's what he's going to do. He's going to make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment for your bones. We could go on and on and on. Passages all through the Bible that speak about God's role and our response. And, and, and we, it's, but we're just so prone to confuse those two things and say, oh, we're supposed to do the God stuff. And, and no, 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 we've got to get this right. Sometimes our well-meaning, well-intended help is not really help. It's not God's intention or will to alleviate all hardship and all pain in this life. In fact, he uses some of that on purpose to accomplish in us what would, would otherwise not come to pass in us. C.S. Lewis, who I mentioned earlier in the introduction, uh, he came to understand this and articulated it very well in the book that he wrote called The Problem of Pain. On the pages of the book, Lewis uh, called pain God's megaphone. For some of us who are hard of hearing, hard-hearted, it's one of the ways he gets our attention, Right? And there's another interesting thing here in the text we can miss if we're not careful. Jesus gives explicit testimony in detail about who is going to put him to death. And then some of the details surrounding that event. And this, again, speaks to God's omniscience and his foreknowledge. Only God knows the future in advance. And Jesus was fully God. Amen? Okay. So let's keep going. Section 120. Matthew 16, 27 and 28, for the Son of Man, this is Jesus still speaking, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, 
And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here's Mark 8, 38 and then in 9, 1. For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus said, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And here's Luke 9, 26 and 27. Same passage, Luke's gospel. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is going to repay everyone, everyone for what they've done. Jesus rewards every one of his redeemed children for what they've done for the kingdom in this life. So these are merit-based rewards, not spiritual socialism where Jesus rewards everybody because they breathe air. Like we do things for the kingdom, right? And, and then here's an admonition about shame again, and he links it to this generation of Israelites to whom he's speaking. Nevertheless, we, we need to guard ourselves uh, when it comes to uh, the pressure of people and the pressure of our culture. We need to guard ourselves when it comes to compromising our faith and being ashamed of Jesus? No, Jesus doesn't say that the person who's ashamed loses their salvation, okay? But, but can you even imagine what it would be like to stand before him in person knowing that you have been ashamed of him? I just can't, I just, I just can't, and I don't even want to think about how that would feel. To stand before him knowing that I have been ashamed of him at some point, ashamed of him. Can, can you, man, can you even just fathom that? We need to plead with the Holy Spirit as the people of God, the spirit that he's put in us to, to make us totally unashamed about Jesus, totally unashamed about the gospel. And, and then Jesus tells us that some of the people who are standing there at that moment that he's speaking, they're not going to taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus' resurrection and ascension? Does it mean John in particular who's there? Uh, with his vision of the revelation when he's on the island of Patmos? Is it the apostles preaching, establishing the kingdom in the hearts of men and women? I'll tell you what I think the answer to the question is. I believe the clear answer to this question of not tasting death until they see the kingdom is the transfiguration of Jesus. And that makes the most sense to me as this event is only six days later. That's going to happen six days later. And Jesus will appear in all his glory, which will be seen again in the kingdom to come. See, see, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain where he meets with Moses and Elijah. And these two men, Moses and Elijah, they represent the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. And Jesus spoke with them. And Peter and James and John saw Jesus in all his glory and splendor, talking with a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah. He, Peter was even so, uh, you know, excited about this. He's like, well, how about we build booths for these guys? You know, and, and he's like, stop, stop. You're running ahead, right? But this is a glimpse of what will occur in Jesus's kingdom. These three disciples were dumbstruck at the sight. 
And the text tells us they fell on their faces. See, the transfiguration provides further evidence that Jesus is the divine son of God. It's not just coincidental that this happened soon after Jesus acknowledged himself to be the Christ. Now three of his disciples are going to get a glimpse of that glory. And then the appearance of Moses and Elijah, that's highly significant as well. Moses was equated with the Old Testament law that God had given to his people. Jesus came to fulfill the commandments of the law perfectly. He, he also did things that the law could not do, namely providing an answer for the problem of sin. The law can never solve the problem of sin. It couldn't. It can't. Only grace. John 1, 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We go on about Elijah, who was an outstanding figure in the Old Testament as well. He had a great prophetic ministry, and his appearance with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration testifies that Jesus fulfilled the prophets as well as the law. And the voice of the Father giving further confirmation of the calling and identity and sonship of Jesus. Here's the Father acknowledging Jesus had pleased him in all things and in all that he had said and all that he did. This is crazy. Um, you know, Moses in his glorified body represented the saved that would enter God's kingdom through death. Because Moses died. He was buried, right? We don't know that nobody knew where, but he died. And then Elijah never died. He represents those believers who enter the kingdom of God through the rapture of the church, who are taken up to heaven, right? And this is confirmed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is the euphemism for death, okay? We're not all going to die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for this perishable body. Can you even imagine? Oh my gosh. This perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Can you even wait? Oh man. I spent all day yesterday out in the, in the, on the property with, with my friend Jacob, and it was so cold. And we hauled limbs and cut trees and worked all day. I came in, and, and, and I was like hypothermic at the end of the day. And I was laying on the sofa, and, and I had this blanket on me. And then my dog came and laid on top of me. And I was just like, oh. And, and it took me 30 minutes. I had to get, you know, it was just like one of those things where, it's like my body was, it, it, I can't do everything that my body wants to do. I can't do everything that my brain wants to do. And the older I get, the less stuff I can do, right? It's like when you're young. But even when you're young, you can't do everything. There, there's just some things you, you can't do. We're limited. We're finite. And it was such a great reminder of that again, and this, that we're going to put on immortality. We're going to live in the presence of God with glorified bodies. Oh, man. Let us be unashamed of the gospel. Regarding the transfiguration, some years later, Peter would write of this event in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 19. Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known the power, made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from the Father, that voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You know, he's saying is that the light we have now is like a little wick, a little candle in the corner of a dark house. And then when we're with Jesus, it's going to be like standing on the sun. It's going to be all light and brightness. It's so much different. Peter says that you and I have something that's more sure than the hearing of the audible voice of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. Did you know that? Well, you have a more sure word, he says. Like they're standing there. They audibly heard the voice of God speak. And then, and then here's what Peter says. You have something more sure. Really? More sure than hearing God speak audibly? It's the Bible. It's God's word. It's his completed word to us. It's everything that he wants us to know about him in this life. It's not exhaustive. It's not everything that we could ever know about God. There's not a book big enough. It's what he wants us to know about him in this life. The word of God is complete. It's in your hands, whether it's digital on your device or you have a paper Bible. Uh, God said in his word that all that he wants to say to us in this life and with him in glory, we're going to discover wonders and riches and knowledge untold. But when it comes to the duration of this life, I want you to know the Bible is sufficient for every born again believer in Jesus Christ. It's enough. It's enough for us. Don't listen to the polite um, but misled Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses who come to your door. And, and don't even invite them in. Did you know that? Some of you are like, what, pastor? Are you serious? Shouldn't we be hospitable and try to reason? No. 2 John 1, 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the gospel, do not receive them into your house. Do not give them any greeting. For whoever greets them takes part in wicked works. I unashamedly tell them about the real Jesus. I have stood at the front door of my house and talked to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And you should too. You should too. Don't let the Seventh-day Adventist cult convince you that you have to worship on Saturday because if you worship on Sunday, you're in, a, you're in an apostate church. You're part of the Antichrist apostate church, right? Don't, don't shrink back in fear. Unashamedly. This is what we're, this is what we're like just hitting, un, being unashamed of the gospel unashamedly tell them about the real Jesus. Unashamedly tell them about the real gospel. D don't be drawn in by the so-called progressive Christians who, like the theological liberals of old, have carved up the Bible until there's nothing there. That Their authority is their opinion, and their God is tolerance. Unless, of course, you don't fall in line with their agenda, and then you're then they're quite intolerant with you. But if there's an open door, if there's even a crack Tell them about the real Jesus. Be unashamed about the gospel. And don't let anyone, big or small, weak or powerful, rich or poor, tell you that there's any other way to salvation except grace through faith in the Son of God. We have a more sure word. Don't let yourself be ashamed of Jesus. He says if you're ashamed of him, he's going to be ashamed of you. 
I have thought about that so many times this week. And that's horrifying to me. To stand before Jesus and to hear him say, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of you. Don't let false doctrines and false teachers lead you astray. Don't let your heart be hardened. Don't let your love grow cold. He's coming. His reward is with him. If you must be ashamed, be ashamed of this wicked and perverse generation in which we live. Be ashamed of the churches in our land who become increasingly adulterous when it comes to Jesus and his word. Jesus said he will be ashamed of an adulterous and sinful generation. And in the Bible, spiritually, adultery is apostasy. Okay? It's, it's departing from the teachings and the doctrines of Jesus. It's spiritual fornication. As the bride of Christ, we're supposed to be faithful to Christ alone. Can you imagine seeing the return of Christ, him coming on the clouds with great glory, having cowered in the presence of mere humans? That's incredible to me. Again, it's not the same as being kicked out of the kingdom. We're not talking about losing your salvation, but consider the weight of shame in the moment of those who've chosen to be ashamed of Jesus now. Do not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will repay each person according to what that person's done with the gospel for the kingdom. Will you receive an inheritance? Or will you receive a small pension? Truly, to be in the kingdom with Jesus, Jesus will be a marvelous reality. But Jesus wants us to store up riches in heaven for later, not here on earth now. So are you setting your mind on the things of God, or are you setting your mind on the things of man, the things of this life? Do not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 8, Peter again, uh, he records calling the crowd to him. Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, if anybody wants to come after me, here's what you got to do. You've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Paul put it like this in Romans 1, 14 to 17. Paul says, look, I'm under, I'm under obligation, both to the Greeks and the barbarians. That's, that's everybody in the known world at that time. Both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I think what I'm trying to say is never be ashamed of the gospel. Jesus experienced death and resurrection in order to defeat, to defeat death and break sin's power in our lives. Jesus triumphed and proclaimed his victory over the enemy and over death. Jesus has become our identity. Jesus has redeemed us. He has justified us. He has sanctified us. And he's going to glorify us in his presence when we stand with him. Jesus has become our identity. Jesus has redeemed us, right? He's lavished his grace upon us. Jesus, Jesus has adopted us. 
He's given us an inheritance which we can never rust or spoil or fade. He has sealed us in him. Jesus became poor so that we might be rich. He became a servant so that we might become saved. He was rejected so that we would be accepted. He became homeless so that we could gain a home in heaven. He, he died so that we might live. Never, ever be ashamed of Jesus. Never. If Jesus has said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, then for the sake of love, we must share the gospel and be unashamed. There is salvation found in no one else, for there's no other name, no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. People are perishing every day all around us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Christian, do you love the world the way God loves the world? Because Jesus left the glory of heaven to come down to third rock from the sun and live a human life, self-limiting, to give us a way to be reconciled to God. Are we willing to go past our comfort level to give that opportunity to other people in our community? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When we stand in the presence of Jesus at his royal coming, our hearts are going to overflow with pride and joy and exaltation because of those who stand with us. Not because of us, but because of those who stand with us, those with whom we've shared the gospel, those to whom we have ministered, you understand? Like those who are with us because of our words, because of our actions, because of our love, because of our sacrifice, we will glory in those who, in whom we have had a share in bringing them to the gospel, bringing them to the Savior. What an incredible reality for all of eternity as we walk with him and talk with Jesus face to face forever and ever. Never let yourself be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, um, pray that you would direct us in this moment. And just to, to the congregation, I want to take us through just a couple of uh, modes of prayer here this morning. Um, I want you just, just for the next couple of minutes, just pinpoint any shame that's in your life right now. Would you do that? Just think through that uh, for the next moment and just give that to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm ashamed of this. I'm ashamed of this thing in my life. And as those things are coming up on your screen in your mind, I want you to remember that Satan is a liar and a deceiver. And he delights to get in there and those things that we're ashamed of and to manipulate us and to make us feel uh, just like worms and, and, and to, to beat us up. Rebuke him in the name of Jesus. He has no, no power over you. He has no permission to, to get into your life unless you open a door. 
And if you've opened a door, you need to close that door. You need to kick him out. As you continue to pray, I want you just to remember who you belong to, whose you are, not who you are. I'm not, it's not about who you are, it's whose you are. Just embrace that. Thank Jesus right now that he has saved you. He went to the cross for you, poured out his precious blood for you. Give him thanks, give him praise. to ask the Lord for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. We need that daily. Just ask him in this moment, Lord, fill me afresh. Pour out your spirit into me again. I want to be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a wicked and perverse generation. I want to be unashamed. Lord, we just stand before you this morning as your people. We are imperfect, we are weak. You are perfect and you are strong. And we want to enter into the great exchange again, that great exchange that happened when we first came to faith in you, where you gave us your righteousness and you took our sin upon yourself. And right now, Lord, we ask that the exchange would be your power, your love for our shame our embarrassment, our, our cowering. Lord, we want to exchange those things with you so that we would stand boldly and speak the truth in love to a culture that's, that's wayward. And I pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts. It would be a natural overflow this week of, of what's happening here right now that we would speak up. We'd have opportunities for conversation, opportunities to minister and to share the gospel, and it would just flow naturally because of what you're doing among us. We thank you. We praise you. Amen. Reminds us when we really want to find him, draw near to him, he's available. But it is predicated upon our being wholehearted in our pursuit of him alone. The Jesus that we love and worship is not a cleverly devised man. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. It is he who loved the people made in his image so much that he went to the cross, despising its shame. He took the penalty of sin upon himself so that you and I could go free if we simply put our faith, our whole heart, in him alone. Never let yourself be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Never. Instead, go forth with his name upon your lips as you speak to family, friends, and strangers this week. Be unashamed. Emmaus Road Church, you are sin.